Please be seated. During the time left to me, I want to preach sermons making use of precious resources to help us in our spiritual lives beside the texts of Scripture, which are ordinarily the subject for sermons. Last week, I used one of the windows of our church, the one of the entombment of Jesus, uh, as a starting point. And today, I want to introduce you to the riches found in the church calendar here. When the calendar for the year 2023 does come out, I urge you to purchase one. The church office will be ordering a bunch of them. In the name of the one true and living God, the lion, the lamb, and the dove. Amen. I'm always charmed when people show me photographs of their ancestors, of the aunt who took, taught school in the hollers, the uncle whose catch of fish he hung on a clothesline to dry, the great-great-uncle who went to California in search of gold and died from eating poisonous mushrooms, and the great-aunt who wrote a book, although no one was quite sure what it was about. We are who we are because of our ancestors. Their life's blood flow in our veins. Their special aptitudes may be the reason why we have ours. And there are those whose avocation is genealogy. Their knowledge is so great that if you were to ask them for help in finding out about an ancestor, you'd better be prepared to learn more than you wanted to and discovered things that might be better not to have known. Well, now in the church, we have a family too. Those sitting next to you, those listening via Zoom, those all over our small diocese, and those worldwide. But it isn't just those who are alive now who are our family, but those who died and those yet to come. It's from those Christians who've gone before us into the life everlasting that we've learned what we know of the Christian life. We've learned how to pray, how to think, how to act. We're who we are and what we are, thanks to them. Which is why we need to know who our forebears of the faith are. Fortunately, our church calendar helps us. Because scattered throughout the year are days set aside to remember some saint or holy person who may have lived 50 years ago or 500 or 1,500 years back. If you observe every saint or holy person's day, in a year's time, you'll have come to know a very great number of your ancestors. And you'll also have learned a good deal about the history of our faith. In some churches, every single one of these forebears is remembered with a celebration of the Holy Eucharist. We aren't able to do that here, but at the Eucharist with prayers for healing we hold at noon on Wednesdays, 
We'll often remember a saint whose feast day falls during the week. And as I said, you can purchase the church calendar that has up-to-date notices of saints' days. Take the period of a month around this Sunday and see who some of these who've been commemorated are. Johann Sebastian Bach and George Friedrich Handel are remembered. Although with these composers, we're helped by having their music performed for our spiritual delight frequently at services and concerts here. And Sojourner Truth was remembered a little while ago, who when asked what her name was said, Sojourner. And when asked for her last name, she thought of all the masters she'd had over the years and said, the only master I have now is God, and his name is Truth. Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus are remembered too, and you notice busy, distracted Martha is as much honored as her sister Mary. Moses the Black was a monk who lived in the Egyptian desert. He's remembered on August 28. He got his name because he was probably Ethiopian. A number of things he said have come down to us from 1600 years ago. One of them bears on the color of his skin. Why does this black man come among us? Some of the monks said. And later some of the other monks asked Moses, Abba, did it not grieve you? to hear such a remark. He said to them, I was grieved that I kept silence. Two of the greatest translators of hymns are remembered about this time. One, Catherine Winkworth, translated many German chorales into English. Now thank we all our God is one of them. Another is praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. The other translator, John Mason Neal, specialized in translating hymns from Latin and Greek. All glory, laud, and honor to you, Redeemer King, is as much a part of Palm Sunday as the palms are. The early martyr of the church, St. Lawrence, will be remembered on August 10th, next week. It's recorded that when they when they flung him onto the brazier to burn to death, he urged his tormentors after a while to turn him over. I'm done on that side, he said. <laughs> then there's the preacher and writer, Jeremy Taylor, who lived in England in the early 17th century. Probably nobody has written more beautiful sermons. You read him, and phrases jump out at you all the time, like this one. When you are sick, the soul begins to dress herself for immortality. And of life's inevitable misfortunes, he wrote, I must bear them inevitably, but I will, with God's grace, bear them nobly. If you remember these women and men when their day comes round year after year, they become a part of you. Their sayings become yours, 
Their patience, nobility, and sense of humor make you a better person. And you realize that not only do you have a Christian family tree, but that all the ancestors on that tree live within you. Now this past week also contained one of the major feast days of the whole Christian year. It's marked in white on the calendar. It's one of the five commemorations of events in Christ's life. You know, of course, of the Nativity, Jesus' Baptism, the Feast of the Resurrection, and the Ascension. What then is the fifth of these? It's the Transfiguration. It was and always is on the 6th of August, yesterday. The other four events in the life of Jesus are very well understood and form the framework for our Christian life year in, year out. But the Feast of the Transfiguration is something else altogether. It defies wrapping your head around. Jesus goes up a mountain, we don't know which, with three of his closest disciples, and in their presence is transfigured. That is, to quote Luke's Gospel, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white, and Moses and Elijah came to Jesus and were talking with him. Yes, all that may be true, but still, what does the transfiguration mean? When it comes to experiences that lie beyond our understanding, and the transfiguration is certainly one of those, the language we have to express such experiences is limited. The disciples talked of light, of clothes becoming whiter than any white ordinarily seen on earth. But they knew their words were inadequate. And they talked of clouds, of the cloud that wrapped in mist the mountain where Jesus and his disciples had gone. They were the best words they had for an experience that transcended human comprehension. For what words are there when you want to convey how Christ suddenly appeared to three very mortal men in all his transparent and never-before-seen glory? Yes, the light was brighter than any brightness earth has to offer and more glorious, and the cloud, what did they understand the cloud to be? Perhaps it was to protect human eyes from the sight of the heavens opening and the divine world lying visible to earthly eyes even for a second. Can we bear that? And Moses and Elijah, they were there, why? To show the disciples something they couldn't take in at the time, that in Jesus, the two separate strands of God's teaching to the people of Israel had been joined and brought to their perfection in Jesus' message. I've come to see the transfiguration as simply that time when suddenly, without preparation, the complete and total being of Jesus was revealed in all its perfect transparency and blinding brilliance. 
Christ was, after all, the light which came into the world, and that light which we ordinarily see moderated and dulled for our very human senses, was experienced by those disciples in all its piercing and otherworldly brightness. They saw it, were stunned, and then the vision closed. There was another time when the total reality of Jesus became apparent. No blinding light this time, only blood. And was on another hill just outside of Jerusalem, where Jesus hung on a cross, dying. This was just as inexplicable as the first transfiguration, and it took Jesus' disciples even longer to take in its meaning. In fact, we're still taking in the meaning of that death on Calvary. But what the first followers of Jesus did grasp of that suffering, and we can follow them in this, is that suffering and love were joined by Jesus on the cross. And that God, through Jesus, reveals how the greatest love is discovered through the greatest suffering. And that what lies closest to God's heart is the way God makes pain and suffering blossom into a love that brings healing and redemption on its wings. Now there are times when something like a transformation Figuration happens in quite ordinary people. I remember one occasion, and it stuck with me for more than 50 years. And it's an example of what happens fairly frequently. I was a young curate and assigned by my rector to do all the hospital visiting. He didn't much like hospitals or sick people. Well, I was asked by some family members to visit an aunt of theirs who had been admitted to the hospital. And they took care to tell me that she was a most disagreeable person. She spewed venom like a snake, one of the family said. I visited her, and yes, she was every bit as venomous as they'd said. But I had to steel myself to it because in those days, you perhaps may remember, you recovered in the hospital, and that could take weeks. I'd be seeing a lot of her. I went again, and she was just as unpleasant, but I kept on visiting, and I began to notice a change taking place in her. The wrinkles that had been etched deep on her face from years of anger and spitefulness had smoothed just a little. It got to the point that when I talked to her wife, she even smiled. Only a weak little smile, though. Later on, I stopped in, and she announced that she'd been waiting for me to come and wondered where I'd been. My goodness, I thought, I didn't think I should live long enough to hear her talk like that. Well, she was in the hospital, recovering for weeks, and slowly, Slowly she smiled more, her eyes regained their sparkle, and she actually had pleasant things to say, even about the hospital, the nurses and the doctors, and you know how hard that can sometimes be. I checked with the family. Had they too seen any changes in her? 
Why, yes, they had, and they were delighted. They were experiencing an aunt they didn't know they had. I don't want to say that she left the hospital having altogether lost her old ways. She was still capable of delivering a tart and sharp comment, but the venom had gone. It was as if she'd been transfigured. That old bitter self had pretty much fallen away. Her face had lost its hardness. There was color in her cheeks and her eyes looked alive. It was as if her true self was being revealed in her and to her again, as if it had broken out of prison and that she was in the process of becoming again who it was that God made her to be in the first place. She left the hospital and moved away to be with family. And at Christmas they wrote to say that she was doing well and that they were enjoying getting to know an aunt they never knew they had. I have one more point to make before I'm finished and I suspect you could make it yourself. This process of transfiguration, the Greek church calls it metamorphosis, which means transformation, by which Jesus momentarily to his followers revealed his true being, not hidden in the folds of human flesh, nor wrapped in human limitations, but truly and completely is, I think, a spiritual process that goes on in, within each of us to make us the person God created us to be. It's a process that probably takes a lifetime to accomplish, and it's certainly the adventure of a lifetime, to discover the dark places in us gradually becoming light-filled, to see those parts in us that had struggled for so long to break through, to find the light the way a chick sees it when the shell that's enclosed it breaks open, or when a butterfly emerges from its cocoon. It's to come to know the person we really are, and for the first time, and to greet ourselves as friends.